All right. I got to tell you something wild that happened last service. Right? This isn't the first time I've ever had to speak, but, you know, this is kind of a special moment since I'm just out of seminary, my first time teaching here, and so I'm like five minutes in. This is, this is like an hour ago. I'm five minutes in, and I'm lifting this thing up, and it totally falls apart in my first sermon. And I'm just like, what do you do when that happens? They didn't teach me that in my preaching course. So um, as long as that doesn't happen, we'll have a successful time here. Um, but I do want to say before starting the, the sermon that, you know, I, I've moved a few times, and I think the fear in moving, I don't know if you guys have moved, but the fear in moving is, is, is losing a, a place of belonging, a home. And I've just found in you guys in this place um, belonging. And that's meant so much to me and to experience that so quickly. And so I just wanted to say thank you for that. Um, it's just, it's meant a lot to me. So with that, uh, I would love to pray for us as we get into the text. Um, Lord God, we, we need you to see you and to understand your word um, is only done by your spirit. And so uh, we just pray and ask that you would speak now. Um, you've appointed this text for, for us um, to profit. And so uh, may that happen, Lord. We pray this in your name. Amen. So as Andrew said, I'm coming on three months here at the Shawnee campus uh, which means I'm now starting to get a fuller job description, some more tasks, because before it's basically just been like hang out at Cafe Equinox, uh, which has been good, a good two months, but knowing Tim and Andrew, that's been a lot of what it's been. Um, but one of the things I've been tasked with is to think through strategies for our student ministries. And so I've been reading this book on the different phases from kindergarten up to young adulthood, and I was captured by the chapter on sixth grade. Um, middle school is a unique experience. They have a unique good and, and awesomeness to provide to all of us, but it also is uniquely challenging because there's so much change that's happening in their lives and to the parents' lives. And so this book is writing to adults present in those middle schooler lives, and it says, look, there's one thing to worry about, and it's this, don't ever let that student worry or wonder about if anyone cares about them. Don't let them ask the question, who cares? Therefore, when they push, show that you can't be pushed away. When they're changing and there's all this change happening, show that you love them consistently. When they break your trust, show them that you are someone who can be trusted. And that struck me to the core, not only because middle school Joseph needed that, I knew that, um, but also Joseph now needs that. In my relationship with the Lord, as, as I've progressed, how I've wondered, have, have I pushed you, Lord, too far? And my own inconsistencies of good and bad, will you prove to be consistent? When I've broken my word time and time again, will you continue to be someone who will be faithful to me? Or have I moved outside the boundaries of your love? Right, it's that experience when you come to him, it's what is your expectation? Are you outside or are you an insider? And that's the question or or the questions that this text is wrestling with. I want to kind of catch us up, especially if you're new, to what has been happening in the Gospel of Luke. All right, so we've been in this series about rediscovering Jesus, and we just heard in Luke 7 about a centurion. But previously, in Luke 4, Jesus gave his first sermon. And in his first sermon, he says, hey, I came here to, to do good, to preach good news to the poor, to preach and, and set free the captives, to give the blind sight, 
And he gave that sermon in his hometown, and everyone's like high five, and they're like, yes, he's our hometown hero. He's coming to do this for us. And Jesus is like, hold on a second. I'm not doing this for you. He says, I'm, I'm more like Elisha, the prophet, who when in Israel in that time there were plenty of lepers, there were plenty of people who needed healing, he went to Naaman, the foreigner, the outsider, the Syrian, to heal him. And Jesus is starting to redefine what is insider and outsider, and he's raising this, this question. He continues in his ministry, and we've been in the past few weeks in Luke 6, where Jesus has been talking about what the kingdom is actually like, what the community is like, and he focuses on love. That love is different than the love that's in the world. The love that the Father has is one that goes to the evil and the ungrateful, that leads to forgiveness, that doesn't expect anything back. And it's these two things that lead into this passage. And there's a great quote from a New Testament scholar who sets up the text like this. He says, The principal issue of this account, being Luke 7, was raised within Jesus' sermon. If love is to be extended even to enemies, are there any functional perimeters for the reach of Jesus' gracious ministry? That is, how far will Jesus go in doing good? And so that that is the question that we're wrestling with is Luke 4, who are the insiders and the outsiders, and what, how, how far will Jesus go in doing good? So our key questions, if you're a note taker, you can write this down, is this. Who is Jesus willing to do good to? Who is Jesus willing to do good to? And enter the scene, a centurion. Okay? So the outline of our text is going to be like this. We're going to look at the stigma of the centurion. We're going to look at the worldliness of the religious people in the story. And then we're going to land in the great faith of the centurion. Okay, so that's our outline, and we're going to start with the stigma of the centurion. Again, we're asking the question, who is Jesus willing to do good to? And so looking at the first three verses, I'll I'll read them again. It says this, when Jesus had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum, and a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his slave. All right, so Luke gives us this great transition phrase. He says, when he had completed, when Jesus has completed all his teaching. Transition phrases, we kind of like overlook them, but they're actually really important because they set a background or a landscape for the scene to take place in. It's how we're supposed to understand what's going on, and he backgrounds it with Jesus' teaching. And Luke does this several times throughout the Gospel of Luke. For example, Luke 15, you have the prodigal son, the parable of the lost sheep, the lost coin, Right? These very important parables. And right before that, he was prompted to share that because t- uh, Pharisees asked him, hey, why are you eating with tax collectors and with sinners? Well, you know what Jesus just taught on before that? He taught on how if you have a meal, if you have a banquet, if you have a feast, invite anybody, even the less honorable. And so Luke has this pattern of having a teaching of Jesus followed by some sort of confusion, typically by religious leaders, and then Jesus actually showing what he means. And what we're getting in this text is the application, right? The issue's been raised in in, in the teaching, and now through this centurion, we're getting an answer, the application. That's what our text is. But it's peculiar that we get a centurion, because although this is a story about uh, a slave being healed, that's really only like a real small part of the text, Most of it is focused on this centurion who is such a surprising figure, right? Imagine, I don't know if you guys are 007 fans, but there's a new one coming out. 
Um, so if you didn't know that, now you do. Um, but if you were to go see a 007 movie, and, and James Bond was charming, good looking, performed these crazy stunts, got out of every situation somehow, right? Completes a mission, has these gadgets from 2050 and drives a nice car. Are you gonna be surprised by that? Of course not, that's who James Bond is. That's a typecast. Well, similarly, the centurion had a particular role that he played in first century literature. There was an expectation, a typecast. And that is, his vocation was being a, a military commander and he was seen as someone who would be brutish, violent, unfair as he conscripted locals and forced them into military service. And it's this guy who Jesus is going to deal with. But, but the stigma is even, even much bigger than that because not only is, is there the first century literature context, there's also the Jewish Roman context. He's an enemy to the Jews. right? He represents the empire. He's their oppressor. But he's also a Gentile, so he's an outsider. He's not part of the people of God. And even his religion, he's probably a pagan, and he's unclean. If you were to touch a Jew, he would make a Jew unclean. And then, on top of that, Jesus just was talking about how the poor are blessed. And he says, woe, woe to the rich. And he talks about the vulnerable, and this centurion is definitely not the poor. He funds a whole synagogue. He's definitely not the vulnerable. What is this guy doing in this text? And Luke does something even more to play on this stereotype. You see, in verse 3, he adds an important detail. He explains how the centurion sent Jewish leaders to speak with Jesus on his behalf. And for the careful readers of the gospel, in Matthew 8, this account is located there as well. But in Matthew 8, he doesn't, Matthew doesn't say anything about the centurion sending delegates. He presents it as Jesus just talking to the centurion. And so the question is, why why now? Why does Luke add this information? And it's because in every single possible way, Luke is trying to show that he is as alienated, the centurion is as alienated from God and his people as he possibly could be ethnically, his, religious, his, his religion, his vocation, and even geographically, he's far from Jesus. And this is a significant point for us because some of us here know what it's like to be alienated from God and from his people. To know whether by stigma over your own struggles or the things that you experience, or just within your own self, right? The things that you know that you've done, that you've been hiding. And the question is, how could someone like you encounter someone like Jesus? You know, one of, one of the... One of the one of the sweetest relationships I had or friendships I had um, while I was in seminary was at a job that I worked as a waiter. And a friend of mine and coworker um, would have identified with the centurion. You see, for her, she was a drug addict, promiscuous, um, had a lot of struggles with mental illness. And yet slowly over time, we were kind of talking about uh, religious topics or about Jesus. And we ended up getting to have the chance to read through the Gospel of Mark together. And as she was reading the gospel, she got to experience firsthand who Jesus has come for, for someone like her. And so if today you identify with the centurion, then hang on, because we're going to see who Jesus is willing to do good to, right? And he's showing us through a man of stigma. 
Let's move to our next point. The worldliness of the religious. Right? It's not, I'm not just making up that this is uh, a tension of the identity, the stigma of the centurion. Right? Because verses 4 and 5, the religious leaders address Jesus interestingly. It says this, When they came to him, the religious leaders, they earnestly implored him, saying, This centurion, he's worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. All right, so they affirm the world's stereotypes, right? They're, they're, they're playing into the stereotype. They're like, you're right. I don't know why you would help out a centurion either. But here, actually, he is worthy. And here's why he's worthy. He says because he loves the nation and because he helped build the synagogue. Now tell me, what does that sound like to you? Because to me, that, sh- that sounds a lot like a quid pro quo, a this for that. Help him out. He's worthy because he helped us out. And remember how I told you that Luke sets up the differences, the dissonance between Jesus' teaching and religious leaders' thought life. Right? Jesus just taught, look, if you give something, if you have something to loan, coat, money, forgiveness, it didn't, doesn't come with an IOU. And yet here the religious leaders are saying, hey, we, it's an IOU to this guy. You know, help him out. He's actually an insider. And that's what's most intriguing about these religious leaders is that they don't break the insider-outsider boundary, but they actually uphold it. But they uphold it through the very own stereotypes of their worlds and what reciprocity is and nothing that is actually kingdom love. And I don't want to sit on this point too long, because I want to get to the third part, but I can't help but notice that within the Gospels, the people who struggle most to grasp Jesus' ministry and his mission are the religious. And so I don't want to be even naive about our own church and our own setting, about how we are like the religious leaders ourselves who who don't just break the boundaries but uphold insider-outsider boundaries. And it's kind of hard to see that sometimes. It's it's normally more implicit than explicit. For example, we, we, we say we welcome people. But if I were to change the question of, well, who fits in at our church? then that starts to expose something different. Who's in the seats and who's not in the seats? Is there an implicit expectation of what it looks like to be a part of the people of God? Is there an expectation of what it looks like to be in relationship with God? What they look like, how they talk, what they do, what their family uh, or relationship status is, the experiences that they had or the things that they have done excludes them. And so I just want to put that piece out there because that's true and necessary for us to consider as a community. But what's strange about it all is we have this centurion who's full of stigma, right? But we don't actually know much about him. All we know is the stereotypes. And we have these religious leaders who are pleading with Jesus to come on faulty assumptions. And yet verse 6 tells us that Jesus goes. And so the question is, what is Jesus seeing that we're not seeing? What does he know that we don't know? And so that brings us to the third point, the great faith of the centurion. I'm going to read again verses 6 through 10. It says this, Now Jesus started on his way with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof for this reason, I didn't even consider myself worthy to come to you. But just say the word and my servant will be healed. 
For I am also a man placed under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my slave, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd and said, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such great faith. And when those who had been sent returned home, they found the slave in good health. In one sentence, the centurion undoes everything the religious leaders tried to do. They proclaimed his worthiness, and he sends friends saying, Jesus, I'm not worthy. And in fact, it even explains why he sent the religious leaders. It was because he didn't think he was worthy to have Jesus in his house, probably because he respected Jesus as a Jew and didn't want to make him unclean. And then even more so, he says, Jesus, just don't even come, just say the word. And he uses the reasoning of his vocation. The very thing that stigmatized him is the thing that helps him see Jesus most clearly. Right, he says, look, I'm, I'm a person under authority. I'm a person under the authority of the empire. So where the empire is, as a commander in the military, my word goes. I tell somebody to go, he goes. Come, he comes. To do this, the slave will do it. And he says, Jesus, I know that you're the same way. You're under authority. You're under the authority of God. And his empire is heaven and earth. And so wherever heaven and earth is, so your word goes. And so don't worry about coming here. Just say the works. I know your authority. And Jesus marvels at him. And he stands up on his behalf in front of the crowd, crowds and, and praises him for his faith. And so I want to make three key observations about this last section. And the first is this. Jesus, Jesus makes a barrier an entryway. Jesus makes a barrier an entryway. And this is one of the most important things of understanding the gospel and the goodness of who Jesus is, that the thing that we identify within ourselves or maybe has been identified for us by, by stereotypes or stigma, whatever that is, Jesus actually will use that as the entryway to see him and to know him. And that, to me, is just profoundly radical. Like, that, that's what redemption is is that what we thought separated us, Jesus will now use for me to know him and, and, and receive the good that he's given uh, and wants to give to me. You know, I've been to, I've been to some recovery groups and I have a lot of, several friends also um, who are people in recovery. Um, and this point for someone like that is so powerful because the thing that has carried so much shame and addiction and so much wrong actually becomes the point at which God is seen most clearly the mistake that happens over and over again actually helps them understand, oh my gosh, this is how big God's grace is. This is how willing he is to do good to me. This is, there's no boundaries. He's willing to cross it. And that actually is Jesus' point a few verses from now in, in chapter 7, verses like 35, when an adulterous woman is spending time with Jesus and people are asking, why, why are you spending time with her? And he tells a parable, and he ends up saying, the person who's been forgiven much loves much. Right? The things that you've been forgiven for, the, the deep wrongs, the, the things that you thought were barriers, is a way to love Jesus much. And we see that with the centurion. His stigma, his vocation as a centurion set him up to understand Jesus unlike anyone else. So the question is then, for the second point, is what then is Jesus concerned with? He's concerned with faith. And in verse 9, it says that Jesus marvels. You know how many times that shows up in the Gospels? It's just twice. 
He marvels in Mark 6 at unbelief, and he marvels here in Luke 7 at belief. He cares a lot about faith. And the amazing part about faith is that it's accessible to everybody. Right? When we're talking about insiders and outsiders, what Jesus is concerned about is faith. And that's available to you and to me and to all people. But it's not just any kind of faith that the centurion had. Right? He had faith specifically in Jesus' authority. He says, Jesus, you carry the authority of God. Whatever you say goes. And think about how powerful even this is in the context of the book of Luke and Acts. Right? It's a two-volume thing where Jesus is going to ascend to heaven and Jesus isn't going to be present. And how powerful it is for the readers and for us who where Jesus is not present with us, but yet we too can have a faith that his authority spans across space and time into the heavens and earth. He can just say the word and he will do it. Do we pray like that? Do we pray like that when it comes to Jesus' authority? And in fact, that's Jesus' own question. Later on in the book of Luke, in Luke 18, he's talking about prayer. And he says, look, when the Son of Man, when I come back to earth, will I find faith here on it? Will he find that faith in you? The third reflection on this last bit. Who is the insider? Well, the insider, therefore, is the one with faith. You see, I, I concluded, or I, in, I introed talking about Luke 4, where Jesus preached his message, and he says, look, I'm like Elijah who went to Naaman. And Luke has just so constructed this narrative to look like the narrative in 2 Kings 5. Here's a graphic for us to see, right? Here's the overlap between centur- the centurion and Naaman. They're both well-respected Gentile officers in the military. They both experience intercessions from a Jewish, either elders or a Jewish girl, The centurion does not meet Jesus, nor Naaman does not meet Elisha, and both healings take place at a distance. In other words, the centurion is Jesus' Naaman. Right? When he raised the question of who's the insider and outsider, he's showing through the centurion who the insider is. And he's taught us what makes him an insider is his faith. And so we, we began this sermon with a question that the text raised itself, which is, who is Jesus willing to do good to? When there's insiders and outsiders and stereotypes, who actually is Jesus willing to do good to? And we see in this story that Jesus is willing to do good to the centurion who has faith that Jesus has all the authority on heaven and earth to be just like his father who causes good to happen on the evil and the ungrateful. Or to put it more simply, Jesus is willing to do good to the one who has faith that Jesus has the authority to do it. Or even simpler yet, Jesus is willing to do good to the one who has faith. And the question for us is where are we at with that? I'm going to pray. Lord God, thank you so much for your word, that you love us, that you have chosen not to treat us according to the boundaries that we think prevent us from coming to you. Lord, that you will use all things for good for those who love you. And so, Lord, we pray and ask that you will give us faith like the centurion, 
to believe you have the authority, Jesus, to bring about good and healing and forgiveness in our lives. We pray these things in your name. Amen.